Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing our littleness. Confessing that we are just a speck on a speck out on the edge of a galaxy. And thanking you that you have cared about us. We come into the presence of your awesomeness this morning. Of your majesty this morning. And we do that only because of Christ. We do that only because you cared enough about the speck on a speck out on the edge of a galaxy to come and dwell among us, wrapped in our flesh, confined to it, dying in it, resurrecting in newness so that we could so that we could follow you in that journey. So that we could know you. I don't understand you, and I don't understand your love, and I am so grateful for you. And I am so grateful for your love. And I just thank you for this one whom you sent to save the earth and to save us. Help us to thirst after you and for him and to hunger for him. Help us to fall in love with him and with you. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our brother. Amen. Uh, we have finished the great themes of the Bible. And what I've decided to do is to go into uh, looking at the revolutionary, um, the life of Christ. And today's lesson is an introduction into that um, by way of just setting the framework and the stage for the coming of Christ uh, among us. And some of you have heard probably some of this before, but I think it just behooves us to to look at this again. So I began in Galatians 4. And I'll start in um, verse, um, I'll start in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. He's talking here about grace and the taskmaster of the law. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. 
When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. I want us to look at the fullness of time here. When the fullness of time was come, uh, turn back to Mark 1, uh, 15. And uh, Jesus alludes to this fullness of time in a slightly different terminology. <clears throat> I'll start with verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus uh, came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The fullness of time came. And what I want us to do today is look at what is this fullness of time about? What does it have to say to us? What we'll find here is that God has so much more going on than we can know, that even in our lives when he seems to tarry and he seems to delay, we don't know what else he's working on to get put in place so that in the right timing, in his timing, if we don't preempt that, if we don't step out in front of that, he can bring the fullest measure of his blessing and his power or his provision um, to us. So I want us to look at what that really meant uh, and what God was about all these years since Adam and Eve sinned. You think, okay, they sinned. Why did he take all this time to wait until Jesus, to bring Jesus. Why didn't he just get it taken care of early so there wouldn't be all this suffering, all this time lapse? He had to prepare people to be ready to not only receive his provision for the world and his provision for fallen men, but to recognize him, to have a time in which Jesus would come that was most ripe and, and most exactly right for the world to hear and to receive. And that took a tremendous amount of preparation. And it began with prophecy. Immediately in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, we see the first prophecy where the seed of the... the um, the, the serpent, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman being Christ will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first prophecy. But then God begins to set up a whole series of things. We've looked at them before. He, he begins to set up the law. He sets up the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a, is a prophetic system that foreshadows Christ, the unblemished lamb. It foreshadows, it is a pattern of heaven. He begins to set things up so that we can, man can begin to grasp God in the tangible world in which man lives. And God who is invisible, who is spirit, who is unseen, gave man a way to 
understand God and to approach him and to recognize him who is unseen. And so the tabernacle and all of the, the, the uh, sacrifices that surrounded that are a picture of Christ. And then he set up the, as we've looked at before, the uh, seven feasts of Israel. And all of those feasts foreshadow Christ. And the first four were directly, absolutely fulfilled in the life of Christ, as we've already looked at. Uh, the Passover, Christ our Passover. The uh, unleavened bread, the day of unleavened bread, he was, he was buried in on, the, on that day. And, and we see the unleavened bread in Passover being buried in white linen and brought out for the dessert portion of Passover, which is what Christ transformed into the Lord's Supper, communion. He said, this bread is, this buried bread is my broken body shed for you, broken for you. This cup is my blood. And uh, then he resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And then the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost. And there are three remaining feasts, which is all likelihood he will fulfill. Here, when he comes, exactly in the right timing, I think. I mean, why would he stop now? <laughs> so he, God began to set up all of these things, and he set up prophecy so that people would begin to trust the prophets and to be able to count on them to recognize uh, the Messiah when the Messiah came. And so you have all of these books of prophecy in the Old Testament. And um, you particularly have... Uh, one in Daniel uh, chapter 9 that we're going to land in today because he gives specifics, Daniel does, specifics in time. Now they are vague to us because we didn't live in that time and culture and they probably were vague then and I am convinced that the reason they were vague as you turn to Daniel 9 uh, was because, you know, Satan is familiar with scripture. He used scripture to tempt Christ, but he doesn't understand scripture completely. And I think the vagaries of Daniel have to do with keeping the scripture shrouded so that Satan can't fully understand um, the divine blueprint. He can't get at his enemy's plans. And, um, and steal them like a spy and compromise God's security for the planet and for us. So I want us to look in uh, Daniel 9, verse 24. I'll start with verse 23. I'm going to read it in the King James, and I think it's going to be this way in yours too. It's very confusing, but I'm going to read it this way, and then I'm going to read it in the Living Bible, which works all that math out in the ways in which the scholars most understand what this means. 
um, they're pretty much in agreement that, that this terminology here is talking about weeks of years. So in verse 23 of Daniel 7, at the beginning of your supplication, this is Gabriel talking to Daniel, he's been praying intensively. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision you have seen. And we're not going into the vision that's laid out in the prior verses of chapter 9, uh, because that's not where we're headed today. But Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for sin, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy One. Now, therefore, understand from the going forth of the commandment, verse 29, he's giving some specifics here. From going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks of years, is what they think this means. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome time. And after 62 weeks of years shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city, and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war of desolations. Uh, uh, the war of desolations are determined. Now that's all so vague, and it's so confusing. But I want to read to you the math done in English uh, here. And this is uh, the math that scholars pretty much uh, are in agreement uh, on uh, universally. <clears throat> So I'm going to read it from the living. I hardly ever use the living Bible, but here's one time I'm going to. In uh, chapter 9 of Daniel, I'll start again uh, with verse 23. The moment you began praying, a command was given. I am here to tell you what it was, for God loves you very much. Listen and try to understand the meaning of the vision that you saw. The Lord has commanded 490 years, this is the math translation of the 70 weeks. 490 years of further punishment upon Jerusalem and your people. Then at last they will learn to stay away from sin and their guilt will be cleansed. Then the, kingdoms of ever, the kingdom of everlasting righteousness will begin and the most holy place and the temple will be rededicated. As the prophets have declared, now listen, it will be 49 years plus 434 years. Okay, 49 years plus 434 years. From the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem's streets and walls will be rebuilt despite perilous times. After this period of 434 years, the anointed one will be killed, his kingdom still unrealized. And a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. They will be overwhelmed as with a flood. 
and the war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. And we know that Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed, tore it down. So this has to do with the fullness of time. This time frame that he's just laid out here has to do with the prophetic uh, fullness of time. 483 years. From the time a decree was sent to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. So when were those decrees? There were three decrees issued by uh, Persian kings in the Persian-Babylonian captivity uh, era. One was uh, 536 B.C., what we now know is 536 B.C., the first decree uh, was sent out. The last decree was 444 years before Christ. The middle decree was the, the most uh, significant. It was the main decree issued by per, the Persian king, and it was in 457, 457 years uh, before Christ. So if you subtract from that middle major decree, the dominant one, if you subtract 457 from 483, which is the time that the anointed one appears, comes on the scene, you get 26, what we we now know to be 26 AD. The exact time frame that we believe, the scholars believe, Christ appeared um, at the River Jordan to be anointed, to be baptized, where the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the Lord said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see that uh, in Acts and and, uh, in 1 John, it it talks about the anointing of Christ. Uh, That was the anointing. When the Holy, Holy Ghost came upon him in the form of a dove, 26 AD, it hits that prophecy exactly. That's the fullness of time. That is the exact fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. Why was there such a wait? Not only from Eden and its Adam and Eve's fall from Eden, but from the prophecy of, uh, of Daniel. When you began to understand what was going on in the world, you see that God is moving uh, in kings and nations. In fact, part of the prophecy was about the different civiliz- uh, kings that would, uh, and nations that would rise to power following Daniel. <clears throat> you have, at about the same time that Daniel is prophesying, you have uh, the Greek, the, the golden age of the Greek uh, civilization. Uh, it's emerging. Uh, Demosclothes, I've said that wrong, um, talks about this golden age of Greece around 550 years 
before Christ. And this culture was arising that was creating a language unknown that the world had never known before or since. The Greek language is the most unique language in the history of the world. It is the most precise language. You can say in a few words in Greek what it takes a paragraph in English to say. It is a masterful language. And it has a beauty and a precision to it that the world has never known. It is it. It is coming up with this Greek culture. And this Greek culture is so, uh, this, this Greek civilization is so powerful that it is dominating the known world in its influence. People love the Greeks and their art and their culture, their democracy. And so this language and this, uh, this cultural influence begins to pervade the known world at that time. And Alexander the Great conquered all the world that he knew and cried at a very young age, I think of 29, because he had no more world to conquer. It, that's the Greek culture. <clears throat> About 300 years before that, there's this small little community, this little village that's established on the Tiber River in Italy called Rome, a little tiny village. But it begins to grow all the time that the Greek culture and the Greek civilization is dominating the known world. And so it begins to come into an ascendancy about, well, it's coming in strong in, in, in five and 400 BC, but it is really establishing itself in about 150 uh, years before Christ. And it begins to take over the known world. But it is not with its beauty and its culture and its language, it's with its power. And it, 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 it is with its, uh, its armies that are defeating everything. And it's not just Alexander the Great, it's a whole, it's a whole line of, uh, of uh, armies and leaders and generals and uh, emperors that are doing this. And so coming into 70 years before Christ, you have the Roman machine that is controlling all the known world at that time. Now, why is this important? It's important for a number of reasons. There is a small window of about 70 years from the time, few years before Christ is born, to about 70 AD. So it's in about the first 70 years of that first century, as we now know it, in which because of the strength of the Roman Empire, of its military, of its governance, it had an amazing governing system. And it had a system of laws that brought a peace to the known world. It's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And that hit this window of time in which Christ was born. 
And so there was peace and, and Roman military all over the known world to enforce the peace, to enforce the laws, so that there was peace. There weren't wars breaking out like they had been since the beginning of uh, the fall of man. Uh, there was this peace from the giant. And he enforced, he, it, Rome, enforced the peace. And so during that period particularly, and it was happening obviously before as well, and it happened somewhat afterwards, is that they began to build this amazing shipping network. And the ships would go all over the known world at that time. They began to build these amazing Roman roads that went all over the Roman Empire. And some of them are still in existence today. They were so amazing. And so commerce and travel and communication was easily accessed all over the known world of the Roman Empire at that time. And what's more, the Roman Empire was essentially adopting, although they had still had what we know as Latin, but they were adopting the Greek language. So the Greek language was now becoming not just the language of this amazing cultural civilization that had been in existence at its height about 500 years before Christ. They were adopting the, this amazing language of the Greeks that were now, it was becoming the universal language. So that everybody knew Greek, not everybody, but most people knew Greek. It was a universal language. Like English is a universal language today. But ours is a sloppy language. Somewhat embarrassing at times <laughs> with the words we come up with. The Greeks, that their language, their wonderful language, was a, becoming a universal language that everyone understood or spoke for the most part. And it was pervading all over the known world at that time, all over the Roman Empire at that time. You also have thinking that's developing over this period of time. You have Aristotle thinking on things of the spirit and, and life after death. You have a Cicero who is coming into the century just preceding or a few years preceding uh, the birth of Christ and he is, he is talking about things that are, are different than the Roman mythology and the Greek mythology. You see, that was what framed everybody's understanding at the time, was the Greek and Roman mythology. And these great thinkers were coming in thinking differently and talking differently. And Zoroastrianism uh, sprang up in Persia, in the Persian Empire, which is when Dave, uh, Daniel is, is writing. Uh, he's, he's in Babylon but he's in the Babylonian uh, Persian captivity era. And so this man named Zoroaster begins to talk about how death is just a doorway and that there is life after death and that, that we, it's, it's very similar to what we believe. And he began introducing this idea to the secular world of mythology, that there was life after death, and that death was a doorway, and that there was life with God, 
And it wasn't just these gods out there, but a god, a supreme being god. So all of this is coming into place so that when Christ came, it made it possible for all the world known at that time to know of him. It, it made it possible for the apostles to go out into all the world and for the most part be able to speak Greek and for the most part be understood. And for those that couldn't, didn't have the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire emblazoning the human tongue with the, the language of the people that didn't understand Greek at Pentecost. But you have this peace that allowed for the apostles to travel and the missionaries to travel and to go throughout all the known world speaking a language people understood about the Messiah. You had the culture uh, beginning to have these ideas of life after death that the Christian community was speaking of with conviction and with assurance and with a personal knowing. Not theoretical, not doctrinal anymore. Not abstract. Personal knowing. You have, about a hundred years before the birth of Christ, you have two schools of thought that begin to emerge in the Jewish community of rabbis. They are looking at prophecy. And though most of the Jewish people were looking for this political deliverer, this one who would establish his political kingdom here forever and free them from the hated Roman rule, that's where their head was. Because they had been under subjection most of their existence. So their mindset was, the Messiah will save us, will deliver us. And they were seeing this political, eternal kingdom Messiah setting up here on earth, saving them from whatever subjection they were under. They hoped under the per Persian. They hoped under the Babylonian. And now they hoped under the Roman for the the Messiah to come and free them politically, free them physically. So they were seeing all the scriptures of, of prophecy that spoke to that. The conquering king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And the normal Jewish communities were not seeing the suffering servant. Because who wants to have somebody come and suffer with them when they can have someone come and deliver them? Their mindset. But there was, about 100 years before Christ, there arose this group of rabbinical scholars looking at the scripture and they're saying, there's two sets of prophecy here. There is the political deliverer, king of kings, and there's a suffering servant. And so they began to introduce the idea that there were going to be two messiahs. One the king and one the suffering servant. That's the only way they could figure out these dual prophecies that sometimes coexisted side by side in the same verse that we now have. It's the same verse. Of course, they didn't have them as verses then. But side by side, 
sentence to sentence. So they began to introduce the idea that uh, there were two, that, that we're missing the suffering servant here. So that began to make people look a little differently here. Certainly not the Pharisees, but a lot of the other Jewish community did. And then, about 100 years uh, before the birth of Christ, there was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Abarbanel. A-B-A-R-B-A-N-E-L, I think is how it's spelled. And he predicted, a strange prediction, but probably coming out of the Babylonian captivity. The, 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 the Jews that had left uh, Babylon and come back to Jerusalem when it was you know, rebuilt and uh, settled back in their homeland. A lot of Jews didn't. A lot of Jews stayed in Babylon and in Persia. Uh, are in the Persian Empire. Now, Babylon, to back up a bit, was the, the genesis of astrology, as we know it, as we understand it. Not astronomy, astrology. Now, they had astronomy. They had great astronomical observatories that they could make at that time, uh, watching the stars, but it, got, it melded over into an astrological belief system. Uh, when David was prophesying and writing, this, this astrological system was uh, coming into its zenith, was, was burgeoning. And so they had coming out, both the Jews that stayed and the Jews that came, they still had a sense of this Babylonian astrological culture where the constellations meant something, where the stars and the planets meant something. And so they brought with them out of that the belief that the constellation, a certain constellation was of the house of David, and it was Pisces. And that Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, was the royal star of the house of David. And that Other stars had meaning, but these two particular, Pisces and Jupiter, um, had, had great uh, impact. And, and uh, Saturn was um, also considered a, a, um, a symbol of uh, the Jews and of Israel. So Abarbanel predicted about 100 years um, before the coming of Christ, that when the planets, the royal planet Jupiter uh, of the house of David and Saturn, the, the symbol of Israel, converged in the constellation Pisces, which was the constellation for Israel, that the Messiah would be born. In what we now know as four years B.C., which we think probably is the more likely actual birth year of Christ, 
Jupiter and Saturn converged in the constellation Pisces three times. So you have then this great messianic anticipation uh, emerging. Because those that understood the mathematical hieroglyphics of Daniel <laughs> realized that the first decree of, uh, from Persia to rebuild Jerusalem had not been fulfilled prophetically, that it was not that was not it. So they're coming up to the time frame in which if the second decree to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, was the one that you start marking from, that they're in the time frame. This is, this is it. And then you have, in that time frame, you have Jupiter and Saturn converging in the constellation Pisces three times and you are having a great messianic fervor beginning in this time frame of the birth of Christ. And so when the wise men came from the east, you know, what is east of Jerusalem? Babylon. When they came from the east, they'd been looking in the skies for the sign. And they saw this unusual star, and they followed it. That's coming out of the redemption that God brings even to things that are not of him, as far as astro astrology is concerned. Bringing them there to be witness to the birth of the anointed one, the Messiah. And 26 years later, exactly on time, he goes to the River Jordan and is anointed 483 years after. The second decree was sent out to rebuild Jerusalem because the timing was right. The timing was right because the need was so great. That's another one of the fullness of time issues. If he came today, we are needless. So? The people were not needless then. That's another part of this larger picture that you and I hardly ever glimpse, glimpse but is there. There's just a larger picture that God is dealing with that we don't understand. And when there are things that are baffling that happen in our lives and the lives of our loved ones that are so painful that we don't understand, there is something bigger going on. And this is where faith has to bridge the gap. God allowed for the delay, for not the delay, but the timing to be such that people were so seeking after an answer because they were so desperately aware of their needs. There was leprosy, there, were, there was blindness, and there was deafness, and, and there were all these people that seemed to be crazy that were demon-possessed. 
And I think that was intensifying during that time as well. And I think God allowed it. So that when Christ came and he dealt with those spiritual demonic issues that no one had a clue about what, what that meant, what that was, it would speak to them. And so all of these needs, plus the spiritual needs, plus the, the, um, the hunger, the imprisonment, uh, or the, not the imprisonment, but the bondage that the Jewish people were under, um, in, in bondage to Rome, the difficulties that they had, even though there was all of this Roman peace, made them ready, ripe, to be looking for a deliverer. So that when he came on the scene and he did a miracle or two, people rushed to him. And so even as he came out of the wilderness experience and made his way to Nazareth, we see we see uh, references that he was flocked by people because he did some miracles on his way to Nazareth and, and the thirst was being quenched. So in the fullness of time, Christ came and the delay is for many reasons, but it was to get the people ready not only to recognize Christ, but to recognize first their need. Their need for him. To be prepared to receive him from the cultural, political, spiritual thinking of the time that had preceded them. And to get it ready for the good news to be sent out into all the world. For him to be able to give them the great commission just before he ascended into heaven to go into all the world preaching and teaching and baptizing. They could do that in that 70-year window with ease. They could do it. So the lesson here for you and me is even though the Lord tarries with answers to your need and answers to your prayer, have faith anyway. He is doing a work behind the scenes that you know not of. Trust him. Because he has come to save you eternally. He is a good God. And if good, then you can trust him when your emotions do not say that. Patty. Well, clearly, it has to do with the fullness of time again. So is that not another fullness of time? Or how, what? Well, that, that was the fullness of time that the scripture was most precisely speaking of. But then you have, uh, toward the end of the first century, revela the revelation to John, in which God lays out a less clear uh, package 
but it has to do with the fullness of time. I think, if, I think for the most part, um, it has to do with, so uh, Satan will not, will not recognize what God is doing because uh, God will come, Christ will come like a thief in the night to steal away those that are his. And I think, I think secrecy uh, is really significant in this spiritual warfare battle of God accomplishing that. Now, if you look further in Daniel 9, it seems to allude, it, it has a 490-year period. So there's another week of years that's not really dealt with. It appears, and most scholars have sort of gone to this place, it appears, that there is this final seven-year period where the Messiah is cut off in the middle. I think we read that this morning. He's cut off in the middle of that seven-year period. And he died in, in the three-and-a-half-year three mark of his public ministry. Christ was crucified. So we have another three-and-a-half years that are not accounted for, that are prophetic. The essential sense of scholars is that, that this last three-and-a-half-year period is set aside for the end times and that there is a large swath of time that's not captured in Daniel's prophecy. And so if you look in Revelation, you see that the, the two witnesses in Revelation that appear to be, because they have all the characteristics of two prophets in the Old Testament. They have the characteristic of Moses and the characteristics of Elijah. And Moses was buried by God. And in, uh, in Jude, um, I'm getting into a big mess here, but <laughs> uh, we find in about verse 9 or 10 that um, Michael the archangel fought with Satan over the body of Moses. Satan tried to possess the body of Moses. I think that had to do with some sort of um, something having to do with the uh, incarnation, reincarnation, reincarnation of the Antichrist. I think he was trying to possess the body of Moses for bringing his Antichrist in through him. That's just my own little crazy theory. But we see that God buried Moses so that Satan couldn't get at that. And we see Elijah going up in a chariot of fire. And those two witnesses in Jerusalem, they witness in Jerusalem for three and a half well, they don't. They, they witness in Jerusalem for, is it three and a half years? And they lie, their bodies lie dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three, for three days. And that there is, a, there is, in the end times, the Antichrist comes and makes a seven-year treaty with uh, Israel. And at the middle of that seven-year treaty, at the three-and-a-half-year period, he cuts it off. 
and stops the sacrifices. So the sacrifices are going. Well, that means there's a temple because you can't have sacrifices if there's not a temple. So there are things that tell us in the end times when, when is, the Jews begin to rebuild the temple, we are coming in to something significant. We still don't know the time frame exactly, but we're coming into something significant because the uh, sacrificial system is going to be restarted and, and uh, under the Antichrist. I mean, he's going he's gonna to give a, a, a treaty for that to happen with Israel. Cuts it off at three and a half years, which is the same time frame as the public ministry of Christ. It covers that seven-year, that lost seven-year period that we, we're not seeing where it went in, in um, Daniel. <clears throat> and then for three and a half years, there's tremendous persecution. And in that time frame then, we will know. We are not supposed to know until then. The scripture has been real clear. Um, uh, with Daniel, uh, Daniel was told to seal up the prophecy until the end times. That people would not really understand the prophecy until it was beginning to happen. That's part of the secrecy. That's part of the mystery that protects God's plan from Satan's ambush is this mystery. So that's why it's vague to us. It's because it is wrapped in mystery until the time it's happening. And when it's happening, we have been prepared. We've been prepared by prophecy. We've been prepared by, as we study his word, to begin to recognize the Antichrist, if we're, if we're still here. To begin to recognize what he's doing and to know this is it. And, and to, to be ready. So it's deliberately uh, mystified uh, by the hand of God. And that's the part of keeping Satan in the dark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. And well, we, we, we see that happening now. You know, some people try to, you know, bring things on. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there, there are a lot that you see that try to try to bring it on, but yeah, we're not supposed to have specificity. Do you think that that time is much more mystified than this? Than this fullness? No, the opposite. Yeah, this is much more mystified. The fullness of time. This this time we're talking about. Our time. Well, no, the time that you were saying it all pointed to. Okay. Uh, that, that was somewhat mystified, but there were specific prophetic like time frames. In our time. time. Yes. Well, it, it, I, actually, the only thing that was really specific was Daniel's prophecy. Nothing else was really specific. And it was confusing because he'd have both the, the king of kings and the suffering servant and, in one and the same time. And I, do you all, if anybody needs to leave because we're running over here, uh, uh, you can certainly feel free to do so. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, it was very confusing. That was the only part that was clear, and it was still not real clear. Because there were three. Uh-huh. There were. And so not in my lifetime is that going to happen, you know, because those are spread out too far, that it was a generational gap. Um, so, yeah, we don't have that specificity, but that's the only one that was specific. The rest of it was confusing, very confusing. And it will be confusing to us until the events begin to happen, and then it will be clear in a moment. When that When what? When the Yeah. That's right. Or they find that the actual center of the foundation is not uh, where the dome of the, the rock is. Yeah, which this is now kind of what they're realizing that it may, it may not be. Yeah. <laughs> here comes the Armageddon right here. <laughs> Oh, man. It's like the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the garden. They're side by side. Uh, yeah, so... Well, I tell that to the Palestinians in the Arab world. I don't, I don't think they've bought into that yet. <laughs> we have a long way to go. <laughs> Do they have them on display now? Well, yes. Well, when I was there in '97, they had 34 of the the gold in, in, instruments uh, already made, but I didn't know they had all the other. Wow. Huh? What? Yeah. I know. Wouldn't that be incredible? Uh, it it will become clear to us when it's happening. When when we're in the fullness of time, it will become clear. It will not be clear before then. Revelation said, don't seal these up. Daniel said, to seal them up. So those seals of Revelation, the seven seals, I think are time epochs, representing different periods of the church history. And it sure looks like we're in the seventh, uh, we're the seventh church, the church of Laodicea. And um, I easily, the first four uh, seals could have already happened. Uh, I mean, the first five, first five. Six has not happened, and seven has not happened. Six is um, uh, where the, uh, the sun grows dark and the moon becomes as blood. Yes. Yeah. That has not happened. But five, pardon me? We don't know. Uh, we don't know exactly where the temple would come in during that time frame. We don't. But when the temple is rebuilt, then we know that we are. 
we, the last thing is in place that has to be in place for all of this other stuff to happen. It's in place. So when you look for that, uh, we probably come down the home stretch. We don't know how long that home stretch is going to be, but it may not be too far. Uh, thank you all. Uh, we will be looking at the revolutionary Christ, uh, the life of Christ, starting next. next oh, but I, w I won't be here next week, okay? You will be. I, will, I won't. I won't be here next week.